the abortion dilemma. Abortion is the single most divisive issue in America today. Not since the Civil War fought between the North and the South over the issue of state sovereignty deciding the issue of slavery has one single issue so divided this country. Is abortion a women's issue? Is abortion the issue of a woman's right to choose? And what is she choosing? Is it an issue of government regulation? Is it about elections? Is it about the right to privacy? Or is it to be decided by referendums? Or is it an issue of the right of the unborn to live? Abortions are not new, not just a contemporary issue. They've been performed throughout the history of mankind. The difference is that today, abortion is legal performed by a licensed physician. And anyone who wants one can have one. It's called abortion on demand. And it's protected ostensibly by the First Amendment right of privacy. In January 1973, the US Supreme Court heard the manufactured case of Roe versus Wade, and it was manufactured. Jane Roe was was pregnant and took Henry Wade, the Dallas District Attorney, to court to fight the anti-abortion law in the state of Texas. When the case reached the Supreme Court, the justices voted seven to two that the anti-abortion law in Texas was unconstitutional. About this decision, John Stott writes, its judgment inhibited all regulation of abortion during the first three months of pregnancy, and during the second and third trimesters regulated it only in relation to the mother's physical or mental health. This ruling implicitly permitted abortion on demand at every stage of pregnancy. The number of legal abortions in the United States in 1969 was less than 20,000. It surpassed pretty quickly the million mark and one and a half million and almost the two million till it leveled off. This means that for every 1,000 births, 300 were abortions. Over 4,250 babies aborted daily, 177 each hour, three every minute. Pro-abortionists emphasize the rights of the mother and the right to choose. Pro-lifers emphasize the rights of the unborn child, his or her right to live. We're in a study of the Ten Commandments, God's top ten, and we began the Sixth Commandment last Sunday, last week, and continue it today with a very relevant contemporary issue, the issue of abortion. Now today we're going to look at three fundamental questions about the abortion dilemma. And this may be preaching to the choir. You may agree or disagree. Um, that's that's uh, up to you. I just want to raise three questions and answer three questions, if we can, about abortion. Number one, who decides questions of life and death? Who decides questions of life and death? In other words, what is our foundation for truth? Number two, is the unborn child a human being? Is the unborn child a human being? The other part of that question is, or when does life begin? When does life begin? And number three, is the taking of that child's life ever justified? Is it ever justified? We'll examine some of the contemporary answers to the questions, then we'll look at the Bible's answer to each and every one of these questions. Now common sense and modern science tell us that the unborn child 
is a human being. But our authority is not common sense and even modern science. Our statement of faith that we have for this church is that we believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, inerrant in the original writings, and that is our standard for faith and practice. So it's not opinions and opinion polls and all those other things. It's based on the Bible, the word of God. This is our standard for faith and practice. I'd like us to turn to Exodus 20, verse 13. The commandment in four simple words. This is our second message on this. Page 60, if you want to look at it in the, in the Bible in front of you. Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Let's start with number one. Roman numeral one. Who is to decide questions of life and death? Who is to decide questions of life and death? John Stott, in chapter 7 of, a, of the book, Involvement, Social and Sexual Relationships in the Modern World, writes, what is involved in the abortion issue is nothing less than our Christian doctrines of both God and man, or more precisely, the sovereignty of God and the sanctity of human life. I want to look at a few scripture passages that talks about who's responsible for life and life-giving and death. In Acts 17, 25 to 28, it says, He himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. For in him, God, we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Psalm 104, 29, When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. To the Christian, both life-giving and life-taking belong to God and God alone. They're divine prerogatives. It's not my choice, it's not your choice, it's not man's choice, it's not a woman's choice. It's God's choice. Mother Teresa expressed it this way. She said, only God can decide life and death. That is why abortion is such a terrible sin. You are not only killing life, but putting self before God. Yet people decide who has to live and who has to die. They want to make themselves almighty God. They want to take the power of God in their hands. John Stott says the question of abortion concerns our doctrine of man as well as of God. The present practice of almost indiscriminate abortion reflects a rejection of the biblical view of human dignity. Human dignity. And Francis Schaeffer and Everett Koop wrote a book and they had a film that was entitled Whatever Happened to the Human Race, which primarily related to infanticide and euthanasia as well as abortion. They says they've traced the erosion of the sanctity of human life to the loss of the Christian consensus. In other words, the consensus that we were a, a, a Judeo-Christian ethic-based church and nation has eroded, and that's where this has gone. Stott says both, if both divine sovereignty and human dignity are being challenged by the abortion debate, no conscientious Christian can stand aside from it. We cannot be on neutral ground. We can't be passive. We can't be in any way. If it challenges dignity of the human and the sovereignty of God, we have to engage. How we engage is a whole different thing, but we are called to engage. 
Abortion attacks the doctrine of man, which is the human dignity, the fact that we are made in the image of God, and the doctrine of God, that God is in control, God is sovereign. So who decides questions of life and death? We looked at this last week as well. God does, God does. The second question, this has been debated and continues to be debated, is number two, is the unborn child a human being? Or when does human life begin? When does human life begin? We're gonna look at a few common views that have come through in the past 20, 30 years, and then we're gonna look at the biblical view. Let's start with common views. Number one, life begins at birth. Life begins at birth. And some people will use Genesis 2-7 for the proof text. They'll say, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The contention is until a man takes a breath, he isn't a living soul. But remember, this particular, this particular verse refers to Adam. Adam, this was a one-time occurrence. Adam was started out as an adult. He was never a fetus, he wasn't a baby, he wasn't even a child. He began life as an adult. So this was a unique occurrence. So when it says that was the measure of, of, of humanness and humanity in life, it only occurred with Adam. It doesn't say that of Eve. When we look at birth, birth of a child, it's a dramatic change of environment, not a fundamental change in the baby. In fact, Stott writes, pictures of the child just before birth reveal there's no fundamental difference between the unborn and the newly born. Both are dependent on their mother, although in a different way. Ironically or tragically, some politicians still define the point of life as beginning as the point of birth. Life begins at birth. Nonsense. The second view is number two is viability. Viability. Viability is de de defined as the ability of the baby to survive outside the mother's womb. So if born pre prematurely, the baby would still be able to survive. Of course, the objections that we have to this is that it's an artificial distinction. Can the baby, once born, feed itself? Can the baby take care of itself? Can it clothe itself? Babies will live only if they're given proper care, physical and medical care. See, from conception, the baby is a separate entity entirely distinct from his or her mother. And they receive care for a long time after birth. The care received after birth is just different care, but the baby is the same unique individual. See, viability, which some people propose, is, is too subjective. It used to be viability was six months, then it was five months, then it's earlier. And are we going to change the definition of when life begins because of neonatal care that is advanced? I don't think so. The third view is quickening, quickening, number three. This view states that life begins when the mother can feel the baby move inside of her. This was a, something that was proposed. But the problem is this, this point is not the beginning of movement, it's only the mother's perception of movement. It's only the mother's perception of movement. What about the heartbeat? Is, is the heartbeat movement? At three to three and a half weeks, the tiny heart begins to beat. This is before most women even know they're pregnant, let alone feel movement. Viability, or, or the ability to feel movement, quickening. The fourth opinion, life begins at implantation. 
See, we're getting down to some fine-tuned uh, concepts here. Implantation is when the fertilized eggs, called zygotes, implant in the uterine wall. Shirley Barron, who's a physician, wrote an article in Christianity Today, primarily to address the different methods of birth control. Big controversy over birth control. Um, and so, how do you do that? Number one, birth control is to prevent the fertilization of the egg. Number two, if the egg is, is fertilized, is to prevent the implantation of the fertilized egg. This is what the, the morning after pill does. So even if there's a, a, a zygote that is implanted and the sperm combines with the egg, it prevents it from implantation. So it, it dies. According to Shirley Barron, about 50% of all fertilized egg zygotes are abnormal. So it happens to a lot of them. Most of these survive a few days and disappear. Some zygotes have a unique genotype, complete set of genes, but do not develop into an embryo, and it is uncertain as to why. She says, twinning occurs between the 10th and 14th day after fertilization. At about day 20, cells begin to carry oxygen, and at 23 to 25 days, primitive blood cells develop. Still, she writes, it is unlikely that a woman would even know she's pregnant. She suggests that perhaps it is when blood cells develop that life begins. And she refers to Genesis 9-6 that the shedding of the blood is taking life. The objection is this, is that a zygote contains all the genes. And at that point, they are a unique person. Again, she was writing to address different methods of birth control. And I encourage you, where you, where, wherever you are in your stage of life, if there's any doubt in your mind, don't use a particular method. John Stott says this, the zygote has a unique genotype which is distinct from both parents. The child's sex, size, shape, color of skin, hair, eyes, temperament, and intelligence are already determined. He says each human being begins as a single fertilized cell. This is amazing. Single fertilized cell. While an adult cell has about 30 million million cells, an adult, okay? So you go from one cell to, to 30 million million. And between these points of fusion and maturity, there are 45 generations of cell division. And 41 of them occur before birth. 41 out of 45 before birth. Indeed, a lot, of, a lot of medical people who make no Christian profession, they don't have any moral equivalence. They, they, they're not going to take a stand on anything and not from a moral standpoint. But at the first international conference on abortion, way back in 1967 in Washington, D.C., they declared this, we can find no point in time between the union of the sperm and the egg and the birth of the infant, at which point we can say that this is not a human life. They said, we cannot determine. We have to say, so in other words, they're saying, we believe that at conception, it becomes a human life. When does life begin? The last one is conception. Number five, conception. We as a church believe that we are to protect life from conception to natural death. Because conception, we believe, is when life begins. I owe some things to John Eidsmo, Dr. John Eidsmo, in his lecture on Christian view of abortion as we get on to the biblical view. Let's look at the biblical view. It's important that we understand how the Bible views humanity. How does the Bible view it? 
Five facts. Number one, the Bible makes no distinction between born and unborn children. Makes no distinction between born and unborn children. In the English language, we talk about a baby, we talk about a newborn, an infant, a child, or even fetus, which is Latin for offspring. And we use them interchangeably, uh, and some overlap. In the Greek, the, the language of the New Testament, we have much more precise language. And so it's a lot easier to, to fine tune what exactly the author meant. And there are a couple instances that we have um, that, that talk about baby or babies. In Luke 1, 41 and 44, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now the word used for baby in this instance is brephos. Brephos, it's a, it's a Greek word, brephos. Brephos is also used in Luke 2:12 for a baby already born, already born says, you will find a baby, Brephos, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Part of the Christmas story, we're coming up to it, okay? says, you will find a baby, Brephos, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. In Luke 18, 15, it says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. It was Brephos, babies. Second Timothy three fifteen, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Brephos, so the word Brephos is, is used for unborn and born babies. It's the same, same word. Very precise. And then in Luke 131, um, interesting passage says, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. The structure is you'll conceive a son and you will bring forth a son. And the word used is huios. It doesn't say you'll conceive an em embryo or, or, or a fetus and bring forth a son. It says, no, you will conceive uh, a son or a baby and he'll be a son. Same word, son is used for both, no difference. So the same word is used in the New Testament for unborn and born children. In the New Testament, the Hebrew makes no distinction between unborn and born children as well. The same word is used for Jacob and Esau in the womb when they were wrestling in the womb, Genesis 25, 22, and when they were born outside of the womb. In Genesis 9, 19, it talks about sons born to Noah, and it talks about the before and after. It's interesting, in Job, in Job 3, 16, it uses the word for baby, Job 3.16, it says, or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? And earlier in the chapter, Job 3.3, may the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. Same word used for the baby in the womb and the baby born. The Bible makes no distinction. If it does not, how can we? Number two, the biblical authors identify themselves with the unborn child. Biblical authors identify themselves with the unborn child. There's a, there's a passage of scripture. This is my favorite, favorite chapter in all the Bible. Uh, Psalm 139. And I'm going to read a few. I, I only put 13 up here, but, um, or talked about 13. It actually goes from 13 to 16. Um, and it's an incredible, if you haven't read the psalm, Look it up, take it, read it, memorize it. Verse 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. Talks about God's involvement in, in David's development, and it's, it's the same thing in how he's been involved in our development, that he created each one of us special, and he, he oversaw every part of your development. It's a remarkable thing. That's how intimately God is acquainted with us. There are three concepts. Number one is creation, that he created. And the author is saying he created my being. The second one is continuity. He's saying, I was involved in, in your past, in your present, in your future. And then uh, an interesting part is communion or covenant. Communion or covenant. The author refers to himself both before birth and after birth by the same pro pronouns, I and me. In other words, he's aware that he's the same person. He was the same person as a conceived, as an embryo, as a newborn, and an adult. And this denotes a relationship, this communion or covenant is a relationship. Our creator loved us and related to us long before we could respond in consciousness to him. That's what this says. And what makes us a person is not that we know God, but that God knows us. God knows us. Not that we love God, but that he has set his love on us. That's what places value on us because of our relationship with God. This whole series is about God and our relationship with God. Stott goes on to write, the fetus is neither a growth in the mother's body nor even a potential human being, but already a human life, though not yet mature, has a potentiality of growing up into the fullness of individual humanity that he already possesses. Just because we can't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. He put humanity on us, we already possessed it. Isaiah 49.1 says, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he made mention of my name. That's you. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. In this particular case, he said, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That was Jeremiah. In other words, he had a plan. He had a purpose for him already. That's for you too a plan and a purpose. The author identifies himself with the unborn child. Number three, the Bible speaks of an unborn child dying. The unborn child dying. And in Job 10, there's the lament of, of, his, of his birth, and he says in Job 10, Verses 18 and 19, why did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I'd died before any eye saw me. If only I'd never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Talks about the fact that, that if a child is conceived and in the womb, that whenever death occurs, that child is valuable and is a human being. Jeremiah 20, 14 to 18, we don't have time to read that, talks about the same thing about a child dying. That proves a child is alive, even if they're not born. Make that, make that distinction. Child is alive, even though they're not born yet. Number four, the Bible gives legal protection to the unborn child. And this is an interesting passage in Exodus 21. It's right after the Ten Commandments passage. 
in Exodus 21. Um, it says, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband's demands and the court allows. In other words, if they got in a fight and she got injured and it was his fault, they had to do something to make up for that monetarily, whatever that was. But he says, if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc. Which means there was legal protection for that preborn baby, and if it died, they had to pay. Everywhere else this word is used signifies normal birth, but here it's used for miscarry, further injury. So the Bible gives legal protection, not to those who are born only, but to unborn. Number five, a very interesting concept. The Bible ascribes sin nature to the unborn child. The Bible ascribes sin nature to the unborn. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that the, uh, the act of intimacy was sin. It means that, it means that um, David inherited his sin nature through conception. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men, because all have sinned. Now, this, this, this falls into line with our belief that human beings, human beings basically have a sin nature. We don't have to be told to lie. We don't have to be told to get angry. We don't have to be told. We have to do it. It's the other thing. Don't lie. Be nice. Be, you know, it's the other direction. There, there's this downward trend in this sin nature that's part of who we are as human beings. So when do we receive our sin nature? At birth? At the age of accountability? When we know right from wrong when we commit our first sin? No. We receive our sin nature at conception. At conception. Blobs of tissue do not have sin nature or souls. The biblical view is that the fetus, the unborn child, is a human being. Of course, modern science helps confirm this fact. We don't have time to look into this. There's a Swedish photographer who published a book called The Child is Born, and he uses prenatal photography. And I know many of you have seen that, <clears throat> where you've seen pictures of the development of the different stages of the, of the baby and, and where it is and what they have. And it's just, it's remarkable. From a very, very early time, you can see so much of the baby. Well, let's talk about the quality of life versus the sanctity of life. Number three. Number three. Quality of life versus sanctity of life. The question is asked, is the taking of an unborn child's life ever justifiable? What about, letter A, the mother's right to choose? The pro-abortionists will say no person should have to bear a child against her will. You shouldn't have to bear a child against your will. I agree. But the choice needs to be made sooner before pregnancy, before intimacy. And it must be both the man and the woman who make the choice. Don't put it all on the woman. This is not strictly a woman's issue, this is also a man's issue. If two people decide to have intimacy, they must choose to take care of the results of their choices. The choice needs to be made sooner. See, our bodies, are not our own, they belong to God. We don't make the rules, God does. Is it a woman's choice? Demonstrators chant at a pro-abortion rally. Not the church, not the state, let the woman decide her fate. 
We belong to God. It's his choice, not our choice. And according to Romans 13, which we looked at at depth last, in, in, in depth last Sunday, it is a responsibility of the government to protect human life. It's a responsibility of doctors to protect human life. And if the government doesn't take a stand on moral issues, anarchy reigns. If it's just my choice, it's just what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me. What if I said, you know, personally I'm against murder. You know, I'm personally against murder. It's really a moral issue that everyone must decide for themselves. We'll make an individual choice between the murderer and his victim. Okay? Absurd, nonsense. Or personally, I'm against the sexual abuse of children, but we need to allow people to choose what's right for them. Are you kidding me? No way. There's, not, there's no way we're going to allow that. It's, it's like we don't make up our laws and rules. I mean, they try, people try to. It's insane. And it's the government's responsibility, our responsibility, to protect society. Now, many well-meaning people, even Christians, tell the abortionists it's a matter of choice. It's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of murder. What about abortion due to birth defects? It's a lot of a lot of discussion nowadays about birth defects. It's frequently stated the issue is not the sanctity of life, but the quality of life. And the life of a severely handicapped person is not worth living. Who can presume to decide that? Who can presume to decide that? Allison Davis, who described herself as a happy spina bifida adult and spoke from a wheelchair said, I can think of few concepts more terrifying than saying that certain people are better off dead and may therefore be killed for their own good. Wow. Who decides questions of life and death? If we choose to abort handicapped, we are fallible mortals playing God. Maurice Baring tells the story of a doctor who asked the other one. He said, I want to ask you about the termination of a pregnancy. He said, I want your opinion. He said, the father was syphilitic. He had syphilis. The mother had tuberculosis. The first four children they had born to them, the first one was blind. The second one was born dead. The third one was deaf and dumb. The fourth was also had tuberculosis. What would you have done with a fifth baby? He said, I would have ended the pregnancy. The answer was then you would have murdered Ludwig von Beethoven. Who are we to say that handicapped persons cannot live a meaningful life? French biologist Jean Rostan writes, I have the weakness to believe that it is an honor for our society to desire the expensive luxury of sustaining life for its useless, incompetent, and incurably ill members. I would also measure, almost measure a society's degree of civilization by the amount of effort and vigilance it imposes on itself out of pure respect for life. The Bible speaks of sanctity of life. Not the quality of life, the sanctity of life. The quality of life is the focus of a pleasure-seeking, hedonistic, materialistic culture. We're all about quality of life. No, it's about the sanctity of life. I'm on Twitter, and I retweeted an article not long ago. It was from August 16, 2017, back in August. 
It was a casually worded CBS News article that depicted a horrifying reality. It's entitled, Iceland Eliminates People with Down Syndrome. CBS News reported earlier this week, and I'm reading, that Iceland is leading the world in eradicating Down syndrome births. One might be forgiven for assuming that Iceland has developed an innovative treatment for the chromosomal disorder. It turns out Iceland's solution is much simpler and much more sinister. Using prenatal, prenatal testing and abortion to systematically exterminate children with Down syndrome. This isn't progress, it's eugenics. Prenatal testing is optional in Iceland, but the government mandates that doctors notify women of that option, and about 85% of expectant mothers undergo the test, and close to 100% of those women choose to abort their child if it's, a, uh, if it's diagnosed with Down syndrome. Just two children with Down syndrome are born in Iceland each year, often the result of faulty testing. This article in CBS writes, does little to accord this subject the, the moral gravity it deserves. Iceland isn't eliminating Down syndrome at all. It's eliminating people. It's not eliminating Down, it's eliminating people. 90% of women in the United Kingdom who receive a positive Down syndrome diagnosis choose to abort. In the U.S., that percentage falls somewhere between 67 and 90%. 67 to 90%. In Europe as a whole, somewhere around 92% of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. This targeting of individuals with Down syndrome is borne out not just in astronomical abortion rates, but in a cultural attitude that often regards them as less than human. A counselor in Iceland hospital sees the issue start more starkly. She says, we don't look at abortion as murder. She says, we look at it as a thing that we ended. We ended a possible life that might have had a huge complication. Preventing suffering for the child and the family. And I think that it is more right than seeing it as murder. That's so black and white. Life isn't black and white. Life is gray. Wow. It is in this supposed gray area that the desire to promote health and well-being morphs into the insidious view that people with Down syndrome are better off dead and that we will be a more advanced society for having relieved them of the burden of limited life. Too many people today believe it is preferable and indeed more humane to murder children rather than allow them to suffer. But what life doesn't have suffering? Jerome Lejeune, the French geneticist who discovered the chromosomal basis for Down syndrome, once offered this perspective. He said, it cannot be denied that, denied that the price of these diseases is high in suffering for individual and burdens for society, not to mention what parents suffer. But we can, but we can assign a value to that price. It is precisely what a society must pay to remain fully human. Wow. This is reality. This is reality. It's happening in Europe, has for years, happening in the United States. And it's not just Down syndrome, it's any other handicap. I know many special people who have Down syndrome or different handicaps. God has blessed us. They are the happiest people I've seen, and they are humans 
made in the image of God, and we must stop it. What about abortion for rape or incest? See, there's a pregnancy comes out of rape or incest. It's a serious problem. Pregnancy as a result is extremely rare, but should not be used as a pretext or justification for abortion on demand. The basic issue is does the child, does the child have the basic fundamental right to live? That's the question, to live. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. It is wrong to punish the child with the death penalty for a sin his father committed. Sometimes that is used, rare as it is, very difficult situation. Now don't be fooled with changes in vocabulary. We've gotta be truthful, we've gotta use accurate language. We were talking about these. We use euphemisms to make it easier to conceal the truth. Euphemisms, they, they're, they're acceptable terms that mean the same thing. John Stott says, the occupant of the mother's womb is not a product of conception. It's not gametic material, but it's an unborn child. Even pregnancy tells us no more than a woman has been impregnated, whereas the truth in old-fashioned language is that she is with child. She's with child. How can we speak of the termination of a pregnancy when what is terminated is not just the mother's pregnancy, but the child's life. God alone, God alone should decide the questions of life and death. The unborn child is a human being created in the image of God at conception, at conception. Still, millions of women each year have abortions and millions of women live with severe guilt and profound regret or men may have gotten somebody pregnant and encouraged an abortion. I challenge us to face our responsibility and culpability. Two are involved in every pregnancy and two are involved in every abortion. This is a hard topic because if this is like any, any group I've spoken with, there may be people in here who have had an abortion. That's the reason Jesus came. The beauty of God's top 10, the purpose is to show us where we fall short. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. We cannot earn God's favor by keeping the law perfectly. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in there. Let's look at God's forgiveness. He died for our sins. He died for every sin. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's just say that together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We tend to categorize sins. We kind of like to put them in categories. We like the not so bad sins, the, the bad sins, the worse, and the, the worst sins. Well, God doesn't do that. We're either perfect or not, okay? We're either perfect or not. And, and it says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, so we're not. <laughs> Just so you know, we're not 
We're not perfect. There's no way we can make it. I've used this illustration before. It's like we're standing on the banks of a river and we've got to get across. And getting across would be perfection. And some people jump and they jump and they make it 50% across. Some people may be better and stronger, whatever, and they make it 65% or 80% or 95%, even 99%, but every person falls short of perfection, falls into that river. We're all in the same boat and we need saving by Jesus. We need our sins forgiven, no matter what it is. And God wants us to embrace that personally and he wants us to embrace it and tell other people about this forgiveness. The church has been guilty of pointing fingers without solution. We've basically been against this and against that and not offered positive solutions. We must offer the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and reconciliation with the Father for those who've been caught up in whatever sin it is. And whether it's abortion or whether it's, it doesn't matter what the sin is. Jesus died for all of those sins and wants to give new life and forgive. The question is, how can we be a positive solution? Jesus came to save us from certain death. If you are here today, no matter what you've done, God's top 10 is about relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you. He says, confess. Confess means to agree with God that you did wrong. Repent means turning away from that sin to God. Accept his way and say, Jesus, I accept that you paid for this. Then put Jesus in charge of your life. If you know anyone who is struggling with the guilt of abortion, Love them, accept them, tell them God loves them unconditionally, exactly as they are. That's what we have today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your grace, your unmerited favor was given to each and every one of us. And I pray, God, that we would not only be the recipients of that, those that perhaps cannot forgive themselves or lay it aside, some, whatever past sin it was. May have been something different than abortion, but anyway, holding on to that. That God, you would communicate your love and forgiveness unconditionally to every person here. And then God, give us that mission where we must declare to people your love and your 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 unconditional forgiveness, that you will forgive each and every one of us. All we have to do is ask. Father, make us a church that's part of the solution, that you would use us to declare that unconditional love and forgiveness, and that we can see an answer in Jesus' name.